Sanskrit word karma <clears throat> comes from a Sanskrit root. Sanskrit, uh, since ancient times, was conceived of as a type of, I guess you could say organic or a natural language where you have these verbal roots that express different actions. And then from these roots, different words grow out. So, so you have roots, you have stems, and then complete words. So the Sanskrit word karma, every Sanskrit word is sort of traced to some root. So the root for karma is kur or kri, which means to do or to make. And uh, in English, we still have words in English that come from that, such as the word create or increase and so on. So that's from the same Indo-European root. Anyway, so karma in the most literal sense just means action, action, something you do, something you make. And uh, it comes to have special meanings. For example, one special meaning is duty. The word karma can be used to indicate one's duty. But in the sense that we're concerned with today, <clears throat> karma describes a system, a cosmic system in which whatever we do intentionally uh, produces a reaction. This is actually, by the way, uh, uh, the, Newton's third law of, of motion, which is that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. So we do something and then something is done to us. So this is also called actually Galileo, a uh, century or so before Newton coined the term pendulum effect that you do something and then, you know, whatever you do, it comes back. So anyway, uh, there are certain questions you could ask about karma, about the system now. Now we're talking about karma in the sense of the system of actions and reactions. And that is, um, first of all, perhaps the most the best question to begin with is, is it fair? Is it fair? Uh, and in that sense, you could say, is it natural? In other words, who decides what the reactions are? Who decides what's right and wrong? Uh, normally, in, in most societies through history, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> life goes on beneath or according to some grand narrative, which explains to that society like who we are, where we come from, what's right, what's wrong, what happens to us when we die, and so on and so forth. And for example, in Europe for about, oh, I suppose about 1200 years, 1300 years, depending on how you wanna parse the history, um, the great narrative was Christianity. And of course in Europe uh, before Constantine, that wasn't the narrative, they had, they had other narratives. They had Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. They had uh, <clears throat> you know, various philosophies and, and of course, uh, Christianity in terms of what, let's say, educated so-called intellectual people believe what's taught at universities has sort of been giving way for some, quite some time to science, to what has been, you know, what sometimes describes itself as rationalism, just being rational, being reasonable and so on. So, um, so one of the functions of, of this narrative that explains to us who we are and where we come from, where we're going and what's right and wrong uh, is precisely that, like what is right and wrong? What, how should a good person behave? If you want to be a morally good person, what should you do? And so then the question arises with karma. So because 
because we live at a particular age right now, 2020, in which there is no grand narrative. It's kind of, it's all over the place. And, and, and there's so much diversity that there's, uh, I, mean, I mean, you can get, I mean, diversity can, can expand to the point where it starts to become what you would probably have to call chaos. And so does anything unite us? And, and so because of the situation we live in right now, um, naturally, you know, who, who judges what's right and wrong? Because we have no supreme authority in our culture in modern Western civilization. There is no agreed upon supreme culture, uh, supreme authority, which tells us what's right and wrong. And so therefore, karma is, seems to be gaining in popularity. It's in many ways, as I'll explain, actually makes the universe rational, if you understand it. So, <clears throat> so who judges you know, the, the laws of karma? For example, take the universe, that there are laws in the universe, like, like the law of gravity or, or thermodynamics, whatever all those laws are. You know, the laws you learn in physics and, and chemistry and so on. So when it comes to physical laws, we don't necessarily ask the question, is it morally right or wrong? Like if you, let's say, throw a ball into the air and it falls, according to the laws of gravity, you know, can you really ask, is it right or wrong that the ball fell like that? It's just, that's just, those are the laws. So therefore you could ask a question, namely, are the laws of karma analogous to the laws of physics? Is that just the way things are? Now, in terms of the laws of physics, uh, you can't really talk about a moral right and wrong. Like if a ball rolls down the hill, you can't say the, bowl, the, that was, the ball was morally virtuous or the ball was uh, a bad ball because it rolled over an innocent person or something. In, in terms of the laws of physics, we don't, we don't really acknowledge a moral dimension per se within the physical laws of the universe. But when we get to karma, it's a, um, you know, it's a different ball game, so to speak. Because when you come to karma, karma is not just the, it's not the laws of physics. It's not just the, the causal chains of the material world. Karma is supposed to be really a playing out of a moral law, of a moral law and a moral law which uh, determines what you deserve based on the choices you make. So, uh, so the question would be, hey, just survive, surviving your dog there. So, so the question would be, um, who makes the laws of karma? Now, if you say no one made the laws of karma, if someone is sort of a wannabe atheist, of, of whatever variety and says that, well, no one made the laws of karma. That's just the way the universe is. That would be a very problematic explanation. If you said that's just, it's just like, and that's what atheists do say about the physical laws. That's just the way the universe is. There are certain physical laws. But if we say that's, that, uh, karma is analogous, it's just the way things are, we run into problems immediately, logical problems, not doctrinal problems or, but it says in this holy book, it's something else. No, let's just stick right now to logic and philosophy. Uh, 
the laws of karma, as they have been understood within all the hundreds of different forms of Hinduism or Buddhism or yoga and, and many other traditions also, um, you get karma also for intention. Like, let's say, for to give an example, let's say you're walking down the street and you see someone who has fallen on the street because they're having some life-threatening uh, medical problem. It could be a heart attack, it could be a stroke, whatever. And the person clearly is in danger. And let's say that the situation is such that if you do nothing, if you do nothing, the person will definitely die. You have to do something. And let's say you cry out, is there a doctor? Is anyone a doctor? But there's no one there. Like maybe you were hiking in, I don't know, New Mexico or something, most parts of which there's nobody there. So, so let's say there's no one there. There are no doctors. It's only you. And if you do nothing, the person will die. And so in that situation, you could say your moral obligation is to try your best because nothing, whatever you do cannot be worse than if you do nothing, the person will die. So let's say you try your best sincerely, your motive is purely just to help this person survive, but alas, the person dies. Now let's compare that to another situation. Let's say the same person is lying in the same place with the exact same medical problem. And let's say someone comes along who for some reason uh, wants to harm that person. It could be like, this is my old enemy. Uh, you know, maybe it's a crocodile came across Captain Hook, you know, who fainted or something. Or, or let's say the person who comes along is just evil. It's just a bad person. And so the person that comes along doesn't actually know whether this person can be saved or not, has no idea, is not a doctor, but this person takes a stone and you know, kills the other person immediately to make sure they don't recover. Or, or let's say to make it even more technical, let's say the person does the same thing that the good person did. Let's say the good person shook the person thinking I can shake them, like get their heart started or something. But the bad person just does it to kill them. Now, in that case, the karma, and, and this, this is why I, I gave these examples, because the karma depends entirely here on the intention. In the first case, the person was really trying to do good. And in the second case, the person was really trying to do evil. But let's say the external physical actions were similar, but the intentions were, were, were opposite. Now, in order for the law of karma to act, and according to all these Asian traditions, the law of karma will act, but in order for that to happen, there have to be sensors in the universe. There has to be something in the universe that can actually detect intention. Now, intention is something, how do you detect intention? Because let's say, for example, your intention is to get rid of somebody, but you start off speaking very nicely, like, hey, it's great to see you. I'm really happy to see you. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry, but I have to, uh, you know, I really don't have time right now. I'd love to talk to you, but you really want to get rid of the person. And let's say you're really good at it. The person, 
No one can understand your intention. But now here's the point. Who perceives your intentions? Or let's say, for example, you do anything at all, which is subject to karma, as everything is. Um, who is keeping score? If there's no soup, you have an answer? That's a vanita. Divine. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's that's actually the correct answer. You get a um, you get a suite after the class. So, yeah. So what I'm doing here though is I'm um, very good. In Sanskrit, this is called purva paksha, which means that in order to defeat an opposing view, you have to defeat the strongest possible version of it. And um, so, if there is something. If someone says, well, there's karma, but there, but there's no divine being, there's no conscious, super conscious being. Because I mean, just think about it. Right now, there's what, 8 billion people on the planet and, and there's life on lots of other planets. I mean, at least in, in the sacred literature in Sanskrit, uh, there are just a lot of exoplanets with life. And so who's, who's keeping score? I mean, that is like, I mean, do you, realize, do you realize the math involved to keep track of billions or maybe trillions of people at every second, all of their thoughts, not to speak, and then their physical actions? I mean, in order, in order to keep track of all this, there would have to be some type of virtually infinite consciousness within the universe. Because without some kind of infinite consciousness in the universe, karma is just, it doesn't, it doesn't work philosophically. And what's interesting is if you look at the early history of Buddhism, which began in India, of course, the word Buddha is a Sanskrit word. So at a certain point, well, it, Buddhism actually became very powerful in India for a while. I mean, they, they took over kingdoms, there were Buddhist kingdoms in India and it became very influential, but then it's like the empire fights back, strikes back, I mean, then, because there had been a previous culture, which was the yoga culture, the, the, the Vedic culture, which they didn't fight back, I mean, physically, because thank God in India, people didn't kill each other over religion, but they did debate. In that sense, I think it was much healthier than our, our situation, because in our situation, you know, reacting to centuries of just this horrible fanaticism, violent fanaticism, now the new nice way to be is you just you don't talk about religion you don't argue about it everyone every religion's the same the problem is that in any field whether it's theology history biology in any field at all if you're never allowed to critique or debate you're going to get a really bad body of knowledge i mean imagine if in biology there was a rule that if anyone puts forward any biological theory it's really bad manners to critique it and so therefore, basically, we just accumulate innumerable biological theories. We don't test them. We don't critique them. I mean, imagine if you did that in, in historical studies. Imagine if you did that in philosophy or in theology, religion. And so in India, they didn't go to either extreme. They weren't fanatical, like this is the only true religion. Everyone else burned in a lake of fire forever. And we're actually going to start the fires here on Earth just to kind of get you warmed up for what's coming. So they didn't do that. 
India has this remarkable history where for thousands of years, all kinds of religions arose that just blatantly rejected the reigning religion. I mean, imagine if you would have walked around medieval Europe and just said, the Bible's nonsense, there, you know, Jesus is not the son of God. I mean, what would your probable lifespan, what would have been from the time you said that? Like we could probably measure it in seconds or something. And yet in India, you have the rise of Buddhism and Jainism, which directly rejected, repudiated the existing religious system, which was the Vedas. And yet it just led to philosophical debates. No one killed anyone. So you have, you have this very interesting civilization. And uh, so when Buddhism, now the way Buddhism developed in India, because it's, it's relevant here to the discussion of karma, um, it very quickly deviated or, or went far away from the historical Buddha. Just, I mean, you could say the same thing actually for the Jesus movement. It didn't take long to sort of take off in many directions that were not recognizably what the founder taught. So if, if you look at the second sermon of Buddha, the second sermon, like they just had the grand opening in the deer park, you know, they're giving out little toys for kids and everything. It's the grand opening of Buddhism. And then sermon number two is the sermon on the non-existence of the self. There is no self. And the funny thing is, if you read that sermon, Buddha actually doesn't say that. He doesn't even say it indirectly. The official sermon that there is no self doesn't say there's no self. Which is very interesting. Scholars have noted that. So anyway, so they kind of got into this thing of the void, shunyava, that there is no self, there is no God, and all that. Whereas Buddha himself, Siddhartha Gautam, you know, Buddha himself didn't say that. When he was asked about metaphysics, like what about the soul, about God, all that, he said, that's not what I'm going to talk about, actually. So anyway, so when, when, when some Buddhists, or a lot of them started saying that there is no self, but there is karma, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of people started to hit their red buzzers and say, wait a second, you know, that's crazy. Buddhists, these are internal debates within Buddhism. Well, they started to say that if there is no self, who gets the karma? And why would, because let's say someone does something which is non-controversially evil. Like someone just, you know, walks down the street and shoots an entirely innocent person. But technically, if there's no self, there is no person that shot. I mean, there's no one to blame because no person did it. It's just sort of a very sophisticated biological robot that did it. And do you really punish robots? I mean, do you bring them to court and put robots in jail? No, you rewire them. Interestingly, and, and so this is basically philosophical nonsense. And this is the same, and a lot of Buddhists objected to it. And you get the same thing in modern materialism. If you say that nothing is real except physical objects, then no one's morally responsible for what they do. So how could there be karma? In other words, if there is no soul and the universe is physically determined, like if you knew enough about the laws of physics, you could explain everything, including all human behavior, then again, you could just walk down the street shooting people and you're not morally responsible because there's no you. It's just, it's all determined. The laws of, the laws of physics did it, which is nonsense because we know very well that we do make choices, we make decisions and that we actually are persons. And so, 
karma, karma, you can only understand karma if you understand number one, that you are a person and therefore you are responsible for what, they, for what you do. You're responsible for what you do. And number two, who's keeping score? Who's the scorekeeper? There has to be some infinitely conscious person. And, and not only just like some surveillance camera, cosmic surveillance camera, because karma also responds to your intention. That means whatever consciousness, whatever awareness is keeping score of who even knows how many souls are in the universe? I mean, who even knows what the number is? And yet keeping scores of intentions, of slight mental changes. I mean, who has the power? Because we're conscious. But if right now, if I, let's say within myself, I suddenly thought, actually, I'm going to do something different now. Or my motive changes. Or, or you. I may be looking at you right now on this wonderful Zoom technology. And let's say within inside of you, suddenly, without any of us knowing it, you thought, hey, actually... I'm gonna do something else, or you just suddenly awaken to some different motive than you had before. And none of us know it. We just see your nice pretty face on the screen. So who is so powerful that they actually can penetrate within your mind? Who is the infinite mind reader? Because unless someone is an infinite mind reader, they can't be the karma scorekeeper. It just doesn't work. And that's why, if you look at the history of Buddhism, by the way, what actually happened, they kind of gave up all this voidist, there's nothing, no soul. They actually kind of gave that up. It's still, it, it's, it was kind of like remarketed, like stuff you couldn't sell in, like you couldn't sell it in this market. Maybe you can sell it in some other market. So it was kind of like repackaged and sold to uh, sort of college-educated Americans and, and Europeans who didn't like the religion they were born into. And they kind of like wanted to be spiritual, but not religious. But actually, you know, the one hand crafting, but actually uh, the Buddhism that became a world religion is the Buddhism that talks about an eternal self, salvation, liberation, everything, saviors. In fact, the most popular forms of Buddhism in Japan, such as Pure Land Buddhism, uh, scholars noticed are very similar to the P Protestant Reformation. Anyway, so, so if we're talking about karma, then the next point I want to discuss briefly is, let's assume that unless you accept there's some kind of infinite consciousness, this infinite mind reader that's keeping score, uh, karma doesn't make any sense and couldn't actually exist without that. Then the question is, whoever the scorekeeper is, is like, is that, is that person or that conscious being fair? What if we are trapped in some weird universe where there is a law of karma, but it's, it's just bizarre or it's eccentric? Like if you eat strawberry ice cream with vanilla, you go to hell, but if you eat vanilla with butterscotch, you go to heaven. And there's no reason for that. It's just, it's just you know, we're stuck in a universe with some sort of insane super consciousness that makes whimsical decisions. So there's no real objective justice. So the question would be, is there really justice? And uh, this philosophical topic has been very popular in Western philosophy. It's called theodicy. 
or the problem of evil uh, from the Greek word theos, which means God, and then DK means justice. So is there justice under God? Or if we look at the universe, is because if there's if God is just, but there's no justice in the universe, how could God be the creator? How could a just God be the creator of an unjust universe? And of course, this is also called the problem of evil, which is, um, you know, if, if there's basically what's sometimes called a triple O God, you know, if there's like a triple threat, you know, in, uh, in football. Anyway, so if God is all, is omniscient, knows everything. If God is omnipotent, all powerful. If God is omnibenevolent, all good. Then uh, if God is omniscient, God knows very well, just as we know very well, there is just a, a ton of injustice in this world. That we all, it's every day, like people who seem to be nice people, you know, bad things happen to them and people who you would just, you know, like the wrong people got the coronavirus. Anyway, it's like, it's like people who are really bad, like people who you really are just really bad people. Sometimes they just think like you can't stop them. And, you know, they eat terrible food and uh, don't take care of themselves, but they don't get sick. So, so what's actually going on? What's that? And, and, I mean, there's so much injustice in the world. We know that economic injustice, social injustice. I mean, you, you know, so, so if God is omniscient, he knows that, or she knows that, or they know it or whatever, you know, we won't get into the gender thing here. God knows that if God is all good, God wants to stop it. If you're walking down the street and you see someone let's say hurting an innocent child and you have the power to stop that person, you do stop that person. So if, you, if God, God certainly knows all the nonsense in the universe, he, he wants to stop it or she wants to stop it. And if God is omnipotent, God can stop it, knows about it, wants to stop it, has the power to stop it. So therefore, if you have a triple O God, uh, you wouldn't have all this madness, injustice in the world, but we do have it. So therefore, this is, by the way, the main atheist argument. Therefore, they think that there could not be a God who's all good, all knowing, and uh, all powerful. Of course, ultimately, this argument fails. It's actually not a good argument, and I'll explain why it's not a good argument. Um, and, and this is related to karma. Actually, the reason this argument became just a colossal headache in Judeo-Christian traditions is because if you believe that this is our first life, that we were just, you know, we came into being, that before your birth in this life, you just didn't exist. No karma, no reincarnation. If someone believes that, there's no rational way to explain what's going on in the universe. It's just, you know, take your best shot. These, you know, very advanced philosophers, theologians been trying for thousands of years, you know, you can try if you want. But if you want to save time, uh, you know, as they say, take it from me. That's what all the, you know, the used, cars, used car salesmen say, take it from me. That, um, 
you're not going to work this out philosophically. It is basically, it's, it's just a mess that's not going to go away. Now, on the other hand, in Asia, where people understood karma and reincarnation, it, it looks very different. What if, for example, it takes someone that probably no one really admires, Adolf Hitler, and let's say Hitler in his next life was a cute baby. And let's say something bad happened to that cute baby and therefore everyone thought, ah, oh, there's no God because this cute baby is suffering. In other words, if people deserve what they get, if people deserve what they get, then, uh, then it looks very different. So do people deserve what they get? Are people suffering in this life because it's their karma? So, um, by the way, there's another argument. There was one uh, prominent Christian philosopher uh, who just recently retired, uh, Alvin Plantiga. He taught for many years at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, which is, of course, a top university and had for many years perhaps the best uh, philosophy of religion program in America. Anyway, he said that you can justify allowing an evil to prevent a greater evil. For example, let's say you're a parent and you love your child and your child has to get some medical treatment, which is painful. And of course, you know, you're gonna make every effort to relieve the, reduce the pain, but ultimately there will be some pain for your child. But if you don't get that medical treatment, the result will be really bad. Your child's gonna die and, and die much more painfully. So therefore, any sane person would realize it's my moral duty to arrange that medical treatment for my child, knowing that I am intentionally arranging for my child to suffer. Because the medical treatment is, in, you know, there is some serious discomfort associated with it. And yet, because you're doing that to prevent a greater evil, you're acting as a good parent. And so therefore, uh, Plantiga, this Christian philosopher said that if God stopped all evil in the world, all injustice, that would create a greater evil, namely that he would be stripping us of our free will. Because if someone wanted to do evil but couldn't do it, then, I mean, you're not really a person. If you don't have free will, you're not really a person. It's like, it's just like being like horrendously lobotomized or something. You know, you actually can't, you have no free will. It, it would be a horrible life. So, but my point is that Plantiga, although he's, he was a very good philosopher, but he was kind of stuck with some very difficult theology, philosophy, namely the, the Christian view that we are created ex nihilo, we're created from nothing, and therefore this is our first life. You see, because and so, and it, although it's although amazingly, atheists actually thought Plantinga had refuted their argument, which is amazing because he didn't. Because you could still, you could come back to Plantinga and say, "Well, wait a second, I can. God is still not doing what an infinitely good being would do. Because an infinitely good being, let's say, would preserve our free will, and therefore that means we have to have the right to choose the." something bad, because otherwise we don't really have free will, but 
a really smart God and not a dumb one would create the universe in such a way so that when someone exercises their free will by harming an innocent person, they do that against a person who from a previous life had bad karma. So in other words, you preserve free will for all souls, but no innocent person actually suffers. And so I, I raise this just because I think it's important that it's, you cannot make theism, real theism, in other words, there's God in your philosophical system. You cannot really philosophically salvage theism unless you have something like karma, which takes place over many lives. It's the only way that the reality of the world is compatible with the notion of a personal God. And interestingly, just as, uh, I, I would say philosophically, the state of the world, or if you say there is karma, karma requires a personal God. Just as in order, in order to defend God's existence in the world as we know it, the notion of God requires karma in order for the notion of God to be rational, but the notion of karma requires a God for it to be rational. So you have this logical, this philosophical interdependence between God and karma, which I think is really interesting. I mean, I kind of find those things interesting. So um, good old karma. Now, the last point I wanted to make, and that is, and, and I alluded to it earlier, I mentioned it, but did not get, give you your money's worth because who knows how much you're spending on electricity to watch this class. So, and that is ultimately, are the judgments fair? Or is God, what if, is God just imposing his will? I can imagine a really bad parent that forces the child to eat certain food that the child doesn't like. Why? Because the mother or father thinks, well, I like that food and that's why I want to cook. So you're going to eat it. I mean, that's disgusting. It's one thing to say my child's going to have healthy food, but for God's sake, why don't you give your child healthy food the child likes? So, so what is God force feeding us his personal preferences? Like this is sinful because I just don't like it. And this is pious and beneficial because I like it. It's interesting. Uh, this issue came up actually in Plato. You know, honk if you like Plato. Plato wrote what is perhaps the most famous philosophical work in the West, which is called The Republic, Plato's Republic. And in The Republic, he makes this devastating critique of Homer, which was a very radical thing to do because Homer was like, he was like the centerpiece of Greek education. It's like, you know, every kid in ancient Greece learned Greek by learning Homer. And Homer was the main way you learned about what's going on in the universe, the gods and the goddesses and so on. But there's a problem in Homer. And that is the gods and goddesses are kind of like these, uh, I don't know, like sort of out of control teenagers. Like a, like a typical scene in the Iliad of the Odyssey, will, like Zeus will say to his wife, Hera, Hera, See that Trojan warrior down there? I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe him out. 
why Zeus? Did he offend you in some way? No, I just don't like him. I don't know, maybe like, you know, I just, I don't, in other words, there's no, the gods do things. They punish and reward people, not based on any objective moral criteria. They're whimsical, they're foolish. And so what you have is in ancient Greece, you have an intellectual revolt against Homer. And the most famous person who revolted was Plato. And so I'm going to, of course, there's a, um, a dialogue written by Plato called the, uh, the Euthyphroth, in which in, in, in almost all of uh, Plato's works, he, he makes his guru, Socrates, the speaker. So Socrates is always speaking, but it's, uh, it's understood that it's actually Plato's philosophy. He's giving credit to his guru. But anyway, in the Euthyphro, uh, there's this guy named Euthyphro who's sort of a self-righteous ass and he's prosecuting his own father for the wrong reason. He's just, he's so self-righteous that he thinks he's so moral, but he's doing bad things. And so Socrates is going to just take him apart philosophically. So Socrates asks him this question, which is one of the most famous questions in Western philosophy. Socrates asks him, uh, well, you know, they're talking like, what, is it, what does it mean to do good and so Euthyphro says, to please the gods. If you, if you do something and it pleases the gods, then you've done something good. And here you could substitute God, Yahweh, Krishna, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's just you know, whoever, whoever's in charge. If, if, if you satisfy who's ever in charge up there, the gods or the God, you know, then you've done a good thing. And if you displease them, you've done a bad thing. So then Socrates asked this person, but he says, um, are certain actions morally good because the gods love those actions and that makes them good because the gods like them? Or do the gods love those actions because they are good? In other words, are we subject to the whim of some crazy deity? It's almost like living in some sort of like, you know, cosmic North Korea or something. You know, are, are we. So are some actions considered good and pious be just because the gods like them or do the gods like them because they are good? So is karma objective? Are certain behaviors intrinsically good? And that's why you get good karma and certain behaviors are intrinsically bad and that's why you get bad karma. So in that sense, in a limited sense, karma can be analogized to the physical laws of the universe in the sense that uh, they are mathematically consistent. For example, if you, let's say, you know, anything, you're trying to fly a plane, there are certain laws of nature. So if you build the plane a certain way, the plane will fly. And if you build it the wrong way, it won't fly. But that's based entirely on objective physical principles. So is your happiness and unhappiness based entirely on objective moral principles so that you feel suffering because you caused precisely that suffering to someone else. And so what's happening to you is that the universe is just like this huge, uh, oh my God, I got a class with uh, Santiago Chile in a little while. I, is it that um, the universe is like this 
cosmic sensitivity training. You know, you, you did it, now it comes back to you. It's just quid pro quo. How else will you ever learn what you're really, it's like that Bob Dylan song, you know, how does it feel? Like a Rolling Stone, how does it feel? That, I mean, the whole story of that song, I hope you've heard of that. You've all heard of Bob Dylan, I hope. Yes, anyway, so the idea is that if I'm suffering, why? Because I cause precisely that amount and that type of suffering to another person. And therefore, when I do suffer, I it reveals to me my own deepest psychology, what's called in the yoga system, sanskaras. And so the whole system of karma ultimately is just the universe holding up a mirror to you. So you can see exactly what you did. And so someone is, you know, smart, as they say in Australia, you know, if you're a smarty. So if someone's actually intelligent, then you take advantage of the suffering and enjoyment and you understand actually your past lives. Sometimes people say, well, here's another, here's one objection against karma. What's the use of karma? Because you can't remember your past lives and therefore how do you benefit? Ultimately, this argument fails for the following reason. Um, let me just very quickly, uh, my apologies, have to, uh, oh, we got a lot of people inscribed, I don't know how they say it in English, inscritas in Spanish, para nuestras humanas. Okay, so let's say in your past life, you, uh, there was some kid eating an ice cream cone and you were a bully and you stole the kid's ice cream cone. Let's kind of use a, uh, this is not a very gory example. And so uh, therefore in this life, you're gonna have an ice cream cone stolen at some point in your life because you did that to a kid. Now you could say, well, I don't remember doing it. I don't remember doing something bad and therefore what uses it for me to suffer like that. Okay, here's the answer. When you do something bad, whether it's stealing an ice cream cone or something like much worse than that, what really caused that action? What really caused you to do that? It's not that your body just did that. Your body's just a machine. Your body's just an instrument. The real cause of that action was your a mentality that, that you had or I had. In other words, we were in a certain frame of mind. We had a certain attitude. We wanted to do something. And so the real cause of the action and of your karma, it's not just the physical action, it was your consciousness. And so that consciousness, what really caused your karma, not just the external physical act, because we're not the body, it was just the machine doing what you said what you programmed it to do. For example, let's say like they have these action movies like someone plants a bomb in someone's house and they run and the bomb goes off. Now the fact that the person wasn't present when the bomb went off, the person's guilty of killing the people in that, let's say in that house. The fact that the killer wasn't present, didn't touch the people is irrelevant. All we need to know is the intention that, that, that you, intended to do that. And so in the same way, 
what you physically did in your last life is not really the point. The real point is what was your consciousness? What was your attitude? How did you know how did you look upon other people? And that consciousness, which really caused your karma, not the physical mechanics, that consciousness is still retrievable. It's still there deep within you. You know, they call yoga sanskaras. That's it's still there. And so by and in a sense, that's what meditation yoga is about. By serious, serious meditation, you could call it introspection, you know, you could call it soul searching. It's all the same thing. By very serious soul searching, meditation, you can recover, you can retrieve that dark mentality which caused you to do something which then triggered a karmic reaction and made you suffer in this life. And so therefore, in fact, karma is um, didactic. It really does teach us effectively because we can retrieve within our own deepest psychology, the original cause. And so anyway, I guess that's what I had to say. And uh, if you want me to say more, you have to put another coin in the machine. But so now perhaps if there are uh, any questions, uh, thank you all very much for your, for your attention and for listening. And uh, any of you have any questions, I'd be happy to give it a shot. I have a question. Yes, please. This is gonna, I'm gonna make it like very basic because that's how my brain works. Go to the ice cream guy. I steal somebody's ice cream. Now I have bad karma. But that guy deserved to have that ice cream stolen. So actually, I was doing a favor to somebody by stealing his ice cream. Like, it's like a just, it, it's an... I know, I know. Clever. Okay. But this is really going to shock you. There's an answer. Um, basically... You can't take the law into your own hands. If you you can't you can't sort of bust into death row in some capital punishment state and just start shooting people. You're still guilty of murder. And you could say, well, why? Well, I mean, there there are very good reasons why any civilized state does not allow vigilantes. Does not allow people to take the law into their own hands for the simple reason that when people do that, a lot of the time, they're gonna get it wrong. They're gonna get it wrong and there's gonna be a lot of innocent victims and there's, it's just gonna become basically savagery. But I don't know that he was supposed to have his ice cream stolen. I just had an overwhelming urge to steal his ice cream. However, however, it's a very good point. You see justice within the universe, under you know the law of God, justice actually operates at two levels. It's it's a it's a it's a um, yeah it, it's a two level justice system you could say. One level is human justice. You, as a human being with free will, are legally legally required by the laws of the universe to treat other people with proper respect. In other words, not to violate what is um, in, in technical legal jargon is called their negative rights. 
negative rights means uh, the right to be free of something like it, like it's illegal for someone to steal from you, to physically abuse you, to and so on and so forth. So those are called legally negative rights, and 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 you do have those rights. So if I'm sitting in a park eating a an ice cream cone, then I have a not only a human right under the laws of the state, I have a God-given right not to have people steal from me. Because so at the level of human justice, we are required to treat people according to their behavior in this life under a reasonable system of jurisprudence. And we cannot take the law into our own hands because that would just that would basically destroy civilization. And if the purpose of the uh, of creating this world in any case is to give people a context, a an arena, a platform in which they can work through their karma and gradually become enlightened and and recover their eternal, fully conscious life. If that's the purpose of having a world in the first place, then you have to follow the rules. So that's human justice. It's a common sense understanding of human justice. There is divine justice also. Because I am not aware of what some person did, let's say three lives ago or their last life or whenever, uh, but God knows. To give one simple example, there was a gentleman arrested today, uh, a Rwandan man, a very rich man from Rwanda, who was living under a false name in France. And apparently he was the person that financed the genocide in Rwanda, you know, whatever it was, 20, 30, 30 years ago that horrible genocide in Rwanda, he financed it, he arranged it. And they finally found him. So now he's arrested and you know you wouldn't wanna be him right now because you know, he's going before an international court and everything. So the point is, he probably lived in a nice neighborhood because the guy obviously had a lot of money. So you had no right to go to France if you were walking down the street and saw this person walk down the street just to kidnap him. You can't do that. But because you have no knowledge that he's guilty of something. Whereas, let's say, international intelligence services were able to track him down. And so because they have uh, certain uh, rights invested in them by governments and because they actually have the knowledge, therefore, let's say in every sense, they had a legitimate right to arrest this person. Whereas you as a private citizen did not have that right for, for all the, you know, for many reasons. And so it's the same way. If you say that, you know, you shouldn't be guilty if you, let's say, steal an ice cream cone from someone who had the karma to have their ice cream stolen, then basically you're advocating just sort of a type of vigilantism. I mean, you could walk down the street shooting people and, and every person you could say, if it wasn't your karma, this couldn't happen, bang, bang. Every dictator, you know, you know, every tyrant, every murderous tyrant, every criminal could just say, I cannot 
harm someone didn't have the bad karma and so basically society would just descend very quickly into the worst kind of savagery therefore certain behavior has to be prohibited forbidden because it significantly harms even destroys civilization and that's why under the law of god you can't do it unless you're the mother of that child and, and you know that the ice cream cone exactly and the child's allergic to some ingredient in the ice cream cone and then yeah you should grab it oh by the way we have a few questions that came in on facebook we are simultaneously broadcasting on facebook you know let's see what the questions are here question from mike jill if we accrue karma for our intentions or unrealized actions, does this mean that harboring bad thoughts that haven't quite made their way to bad intentions have karmic significance? No, actually, perhaps I didn't make that clear. Uh, we don't accrue karma for unrealized actions. I was talking about realized actions. In other words, actions we actually carried out. And so the action itself, you may not remember. I don't know if you believe in hypnotic regression or something. Maybe you can access it, but but apart from that, uh, we're talking about realized actions. You get karma for things you actually did, and what's left from that act is the intention which caused it. So uh, perhaps that's more clear now. That your consciousness will determine your karma? Uh, no, your consciousness will determine what you do. Because when you do something, Intentionally, I mean, intention means conscious. There's no such thing as unconscious intention. I mean, we can get into the, you know, the certain fine points of psychology and everything, but basically uh, when you have intention, when you exercise free will, then you're responsible for it. For example, let's say I take a gun and shoot somebody and they die and I say, well, I didn't mean to kill a person. I just, I just, I was just trying to shoot them. In other words, it's, it's my responsibility to know that when you shoot people, a lot of the time they die. And if I say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know people die when you shoot them. Uh, you're not going to win. You're, you're not going to win your day in court. So. Yesterday, yes. Um, yesterday we were talking about karma palum. And could you talk a little bit about how karma the fruit of your karma and how that plays into it we're talking about it in reference to the gita oh yeah karma phalam phalam means uh, phalam means fruit in sanskrit so the fruit of your karma remember the result of your karma and how that plays into how that plays into what just how that plays into the karma just uh, the the word karma as action being used in a slightly different way or in a different context than well here i mean in the, in the in the way we're using the word karma it means a system of action and reaction so the following the fruit is reaction for example if you want to see the fruit of all your past karma look in the mirror i mean i don't mean just mean your face but i mean i mean the the body we have the fact you were born in a certain country family you know economic stratum or or the fact you're born with certain psychology, healthy or unhealthy, you know, everything about our life was a result of our previous actions. So 
our life basically is the karma form. In terms of things that happen to us, the things we choose to do, that's new karma. But the things that happen to us, just you know, the, where we're born and the body we have and what people do to us, and that's all the fruit of the karma. And then could you go into how we could have stopped accruing new karma? Oh yes, let me just let me just get uh, not get rid of but answer the questions on there's one or two more questions on Facebook and then we'll yeah we'll get to the happy topic of how to get rid of karma. Do bad thoughts in in and of themselves have enough potentiality to register karmically? Uh, actually, there's a verse in the Bhagavatam that says that in this age Kali Yuga because it's already so bad and this is such an impossible age anyway, you are not punished for bad thoughts but if you act on them then stuff happens. So the intention is what is taken into account. How about a person person without bad intention, but his actions lead to the suffering of others? Yeah, perhaps you didn't, uh, you weren't there then, but I did cover that. If someone is trying to do good, but unknowingly there's some unintended bad consequence, that's not the same at all as intending. I mean, the good news is that God has common sense. Imagine if God didn't have common sense. This universe would really be a bummer. But anyway, God does have common sense. And, and so therefore intention does matter. So uh, as far as how do you give it? So yoga, the whole point of yoga in the highest sense, because you know, there's a, there's a shtanga yoga, which refers to different stages. There's also philosophy of yoga, which is given in the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, the ultimate goal of yoga is to become free of all karma. Because karma is something which only happens in the material world and you know, no, no one in their right mind would want to be in the material world. Because we are eternal, we are eternal beings, but in this world we keep taking dying bodies. You know, we take a body and then it gradually get, grows old. I am now at, at a stage in life where I can say authoritatively that bodies grow old. So, uh, yeah, your body gets older and then, you know, there's all kinds of diseases and there's death. And so who, who in their right mind, like if someone says, yeah, I love getting sick. I'm never really happy unless I'm seriously diseased. That's, you know, someone says that, you know, we need to talk to that person. They obviously need counseling. So, or to grow old. I mean, it's, I mean, the good thing about your body getting older is you finally become sane. You know, I now know what age, you know, an average male becomes mature and sane. It's, I think it's sort of the mid sixties. But anyway, so, um, but yeah, so, so the real goal of life is to, um, is to have perfect happiness. Can anyone say that I would not like to be more happy? I could not use more love in my life. I could not. There's absolutely nothing I could possibly do to be happier. I don't think anyone can really say that. Even if you're on a spiritual path, I wish I was more advanced on that path. I wish I had actually realized more, understood more, applied more, the highest principles of my path. And so um, karma, because it's unnatural for the soul to die. The reason that death is kind of uh, spooky is because it's so unnatural. 
we don't die we're eternal so so for an eternal conscious being to have a death experience is just it's bizarre it's completely unnatural and to suffer is unnatural because we are by nature such an ananda we are ananda moya we're full of bliss and to be ignorant is unnatural because in your in our pure state you understand everything you see everything and and you see beauty that you that we can't imagine now we can't imagine the beauty that the soul a pure soul can see the happiness the pleasure and you never die and so anyone in the right mind would want to achieve spiritual purity and and that's why liberation in sanskrit the word for spiritual liberation in sanskrit is moksha or mukti from the same root which literally means release in other words you're released from prison you finally get out of the prison of this world and you're finally free because in in our pure natural state of souls we can go anywhere just by by willing it it's it's called in sanskrit uh, manorata the vehicle of the mind is you can simply think of a place and the thought will take you there you never die there's no old age there's no disease there's no unhappiness true love never dies you know your your love is really fulfilled that's who we really are the reason we keep trying to find these things true love to keep living don't die don't get really diseased uh try to understand why we keep why do we keep struggling to achieve these things because it's who we really are we're just trying to get back to our real life what's that great song by paul mccartney once there was a way to get back homeward once there was a way to get back home right everyone knows that abby rodo and it's a beautiful song i think so the uh, the good news is there is a way to get home it's called bhakti yoga because if you understand yoga is ultimately meant to get past karma and get back to a really eternal life then in your really eternal life what do you do do you sit around and 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 meditate no you're just a living beautiful person you just you're free you're alive and and, and you love you love god you love all souls you there's romantic love there's eternal romantic love in the spiritual world that's why we keep trying to get it here and why we keep ending up with a bunch of romantic pie in our face so because you know again i, I don't know i guess it's beatles day you know all you need is love so i mean really the greatest thing is love anyone that's really fallen in love at least until it blew up in your face if you can sort of think back you know pre blow up in your face experience then um there's really nothing like it i mean to be deeply completely in love and to have that love reciprocated uh what could be better than that And so in the spiritual realm that's what's going on it's unlimited love blissful love unlimited and bhakti bhakti means love devotion 
And so bhakti yoga, the spiritual practice, the spiritual process by which you discover unlimited love. You know, I think we have a winner there. So that's why Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Joginama Pisarvesham, which in Sanskrit means indeed of all yogis, which means of all spiritual practitioners. Yoginama Pisarvesham Madgatein Antaratmana, the one who's literally Antaratma, their inner self has gone to me. And by me, Krishna, we mean the infinitely beautiful source of everything. Imagine if the source of everything was just kind of like homely or just geometric or something, or like one of these sort of bad sci-fi movies. But actually the reason why there's everywhere you look in this universe, you find beauty. Look at, you know, enlarged images, snowflakes, sand grains, galaxies. Everywhere you look in the universe, you find art. I mean, doesn't that tell us something? Everywhere in the universe you look, you find art, you find beauty, you find sort of like infinitely sophisticated engineering. If you know about the advances in the last 20, 30 years in microbiology, the idea that all this happened by chance is becoming more and more just idiotic and more and more scientists are saying that's idiotic. Basically a cell it has all the, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, engineering sophistication of like a totally digitized Amazon warehouse. And that's like every cell. And so the idea that this happened by chance is becoming more and more just like willful insanity. And that's why at the present time, you may not be following it because it doesn't filter down to mainstream society for a few generations, but there is an all out intellectual revolt among biologists, psychologists, philosophers, uh, all kinds of scholars against materialism, against the idea that the universe is ultimately stupid and everything just happened by the stupid blind forces of nature. There is a full scale intellectual revolt going on right now every day more and more books coming out, more and more articles coming out. And I won't go into all the historical dynamics, but people are realizing this is just absurd. So therefore, you know, where, what's the source of all this beauty? How can you think that the universe comes from something which isn't beautiful, which isn't conscious, which isn't loving? And so the word Krishna indicate, the word Krishna, Krish, in Sanskrit, it's not sectarian, it's not, you know, my God can beat up your God. This is not tribal monotheism. Uh, this is philosophy. So the word krish in Sanskrit means attract, that which attracts. And then na is an abbreviation of nand, the verb from which you get the word ananda. Ananda means bliss, it's from the Sanskrit verb nand, and ah is sort of a intensifying prefix. In case you were losing sleep over that. So the word ananda means intense pleasure or bliss. So Krishna means that the source of everything is the infinitely attractive and the source of all pleasure. Now who's going to argue with that? So, so yoga was ultimately meant to reach that infinite source of beauty and pleasure and love. And, and then the real fun starts.
So that's what yoga was ultimately for, actually. So let me see if there's, uh, I guess there's no other questions. If not, I have what, oh my God, I'm gonna have to get ready for, I have it, uh, in a little while, I have a class of Santiago, Chile. I said, if you speak Spanish, you can also listen to it. <laughs> I have a question. Yes, in English. No, no I speak English. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is the great, or is the person who is keeping score, so to speak, is this Krishna or is it Maya? Same company. Same company. <laughs> yeah, Maya, there's a verse in the um, Brahma Sangita, this beautiful, beautiful Sanskrit work that says, Srishti stiti pralaya sadhana shaktireka chayeva jasya bhuvanani vibharati durga. Beautiful verse. It's, uh, I can find it real quick, Srishti. Stiti pralaya sadhana. Um, found it. Actually, I found it. Amazing, these search engines. It's the Brahma Sangita uh, uh, verse 5. Anyway, uh, fifth chapter, verse 44, which says that um, there is one power. Shakti means power, of course. Shakti reka, there is one power in the universe which sadhana is arranging for the creation, the maintenance, and the destruction of all the worlds. So one power, Srishti Stiti Pralaya Sadhana Shakti reka, there's one power in the universe which is arranging the creation, maintenance, and, and destruction of the worlds. And that power, Chayeva Jesya Bhuvanani Bharati Durga, that power is Durga or Shakti, the goddess. So the world's actually being controlled by a goddess. So, and that, that's my little brother sending me what's that message. Sorry for all the dings. Um, so that power, Durga or Shakti or Maya, also called Maya, is. Um, is acting, is, is, is controlling the worlds, but chayeva, like a shadow, chaya. Chaya in Sanskrit means uh, shadow. Chaya means, I hope that all that stuff stops, my God. Uh, chaya means shadow and eva means like, like a shadow, chaya eva, chayeva, like a shadow. And then it said, uh, that Maya moves like a shadow because she is acting in accordance with the will of Govinda Krishna. So Maya is, it's like a shadow. The shadow has no independent movement. If you, if you move that one, if you move to the right and your shadow moves to the left, uh, you are in a ghost movie. But normally, under normal circumstances, uh, when you move to the right, 
your shadow moves. Your, the shadow has no independent power of movement. So Maya is not just doing things to you, you know, for her own reasons. She's simply administering to you what you actually deserve based on your own freely chosen actions. So that's the answer to that question. Anything else? No? Okay. Well, thank you all very much. It's uh, Thank you. Going back to the, the karma, um, I had a question because this is something that kind of happened to me in, in my life just uh, this week where I was driving along early in the morning and I hit a bird and that really freaked me out. And I was like, damn it, you know, if I should have been speeding that, you know, if I wasn't speeding, I wouldn't hit it, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I was really, you know, rom, 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 trying to really let, you know, uh, offer it up to God and, and thank God for that, you know, instance. Later that week, this guy walked in front of my car and that by the grace of God, the, the, I was able to stop the car. And I said, and I said to myself, wow, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's karma somehow playing out, but in a good way. Is that, is that real or is that not real? Yeah, I think it's real. I mean, in the case of the poor bird, obviously your intention was not to kill a bird. Uh, and I know, I, I mean, I know how you feel because I had, a, not with a bird, but I had a similar thing happen many, many years ago. But um, yeah, the fact that then you were saved from, you know, hurting a human. I think the fact that you had that sincere intention and that you were, you know, really appealing to higher powers to, to continue probably to save you from things like that. Yeah, I think that, that they are connected. What do they say? The Christians say the power of prayer. That's, that's kind of what I was hoping. <laughs> on that one thank you yeah thank you okay thank you very much i gotta get ready for my class with actually we have a very interesting topic i'm gonna to be talking about um sort of the difference between hegel and marx and why marx's theory of historic of the historical dialectic caused tens of millions of innocent people to die in the name of marxism and uh, anyway, and then it's all related to Krishna consciousness. So that's gonna be in Spanish. And hopefully I'll be able to give that class soon in English. So thank you all very much. I'd like to thank Ananda Leela, our technical director. She's her pictures there, smile Ananda. <laughs> Ananda Leela, she handles all this technical stuff for us. She does a lot of work for which she's obviously underpaid and subjected to all kinds of abuse. So. Okay, thank you all very much and hope to see you again soon. All right, Krishna. So let's all meet back at the other link. So we'll go back to the other link. Bye, Ananda. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye.